Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. So what's on your mind today? Well, today I thought we could talk about Julian Jaynes, the origins of consciousness, and the bicameral mind. Sounds like a great idea. Tell us a little bit about Julian Jaynes. Well, just to set the table at a very high level, we first got interested in this topic because of a book review by Scott Alexander from the now um, not in existence anymore. This could have changed by the time of publication of the podcast blog, Slate Star Codex, which that's a whole other topic we can talk about later. The the whole saga with the New York Times and doxing and lots of exciting things going on there. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But anyway, Scott wrote a post um, reviewing Julian Jaynes' best-known book, The Origins of Consciousness um, and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which I find very interesting. Uh, it, it really highlights, it, it kind of goes along with the theme of this podcast around metaphor and language shaping our understanding of reality at a very, very detailed level, I would say. Yeah, Julian Jaynes on a personal level is a very interesting character because he spent nearly his entire life developing one idea and writing the book. And, um, and, and it does have so much to do with storytelling and narrative and communication because of the whole idea that he developed was that our consciousness and our mind and our brain development over time has been due to language. Definitely. I, I think it's interesting. Uh, so Julian James was a psychologist. He studied at Yale, McGill, and Harvard. Um, not that that's super interesting where he studied. Just his ideas, are, I think, are much more interesting. Um, he was born to a Unitarian minister. And his work is, is quite interesting. I, I always find it, it fascinating. I, I think we have this view of you know, our lived experience as being common across all of humanity. So I, I think it's important to note some, some of our listeners may even experience this and have never realized this. Not everyone has a inner monologue. This is kind of a rare, it's okay. I'll cut that up. It's not kind of rare. Uh, this is a uh, not universal. Not everyone has some people think in pictures, some people think in uh, all kinds of different ways, but I, I think that's quite interesting just to, to realize that it was news to me. I always assumed that everyone's mind works like my mind where you just have this internal monologue that goes on. Right. But, and you were the one that enlightened me. That was different. And that had, it was during our discussion of, of Jane's that, uh, that came up and I still don't know a lot about it. I'm just fascinated. Definitely. It's, it's super interesting. Uh, human experience is much, uh, much more dynamic, and just even our lived experience is much. It's it's very different than I think what you people even realize. Right between individuals, a lot of individual individual variation. So, um, 
Julian Jaynes starts his book with what he thinks our mind was like before consciousness arose. And he starts it out with a discussion of the bicameral mind. And you think maybe we could talk a little bit about the anatomy of the brain that might help. Sure, I think that would, that would really help. Yeah. So, the so th and to be, to really make it simple, and a lot of people probably know quite a bit about this, but uh, there's a brain stem, sort of the bottom of your brain, and that regulates things like respiration and your heart rate and those kind of bodily functions. And then there's the cerebellum that's sort of behind that a little bit, and it controls your motor functions. And then thought and reasoning and those things take place in your cerebrum, which is the top part of your brain. And it's divided into two hemispheres, the left and the right, and held together by the corpus callosum, which is just a little band of tissue that holds the two hemispheres together. So that's the anatomy. The only other part of anatomy that I think that might be interesting, and this is really important to the question, is Wernicke's area and Broca's area, which control um, the processing of language and the production of language, written language and spoken language. Now, having said that, what's interesting about the bicameral mind? What is interesting about the bicameral mind? What's interesting to me is like, I'm right-handed, and in 90% of people that are right-handed, Wernicke's area and Broca's area is on the left side. And if on the corresponding area on the right side, the brain is sort of dormant. Doesn't appear to do much of anything. So you got a left and a right hemisphere. You've got Wernicke's area and Broca's area. And they don't appear to be doing anything on the right side. On the left side, they're real active in language, and which we've talked about is so important to us. And in the, the theory of bicameralism, what Julian Jaynes thought is those two inactive dormant areas on the right side of my brain, since I'm right-handed, um, he thinks that 3,000 years ago, um, what was going on then was that those areas on the right side of my brain were talking to those corresponding areas on the left side and giving them instructions um, through auditory hallucinations. And that's sort of how bicameralism works as far as my understanding is. It's kind of the gods talking to you. Yeah. The other thing I thought was interesting about that was that um, they made there's a point made that schizophrenia, auditory hallucinations, would work like that which makes you think that maybe people that are schizophrenic sort of have a more bicameral mind. Interesting, interesting. So I guess uh, charting the course out of Jane's big idea is that there's, we used to imagine ourselves as being one way and now it's completely different. It's completely different. So have you, have you had uh, have you tried to imagine what having a bicameral mind would be like? Having something, something that is envisioning your mind as something, as someone else, as someone kind of ordering yourself, ordering you around. Yeah, it does make me think that when people think they hear God or 
God is speaking to them, that might be what that is. Could actually be that. That's interesting. And then it would be very real and explain a lot of things. Uh, it did explain a lot to me when, you know, about um, not only the schizophrenic part, but um, uh, how pre in many thousands, well, not many thousands, several thousand years ago, um, that might have been the way that people's minds worked and they, they would describe it as the gods speaking to them. And then, then they would just do whatever the voice told them. I imagine since right. I don't really know. Right. Yeah. So, so what are some particular objections we could think about to this idea? I found, um, I found it one of the most intriguing ideas I've run across in quite some time because it explains so much that um, appears to be sort of out in the gray area, maybe out in left field a little bit, like schizophrenia, or uh, like religious prophets hearing voices, getting commands from God. Right. And there's even things I've become aware of, and I'm not sure where I'm aware of these things from, like... Um, that God is within us, which would explain that too. We, right. We would really be us talking to ourselves. Right. So kind of when you're, when you're in a Quaker meeting and you're led to speak, maybe it's your communication from the brokers region of your brain too. I think especially the more vivid it would seem to you, the more likely that would be. And it also makes me wonder you know, it's, this entire idea seems like it's a process of evolution to me. And if that's true, then those dormant areas probably still work some, although they may not dominate our thinking anymore. They probably are still. So if you were, um, you could block the extraneous noise of life out enough, then you might hear those things again. So, yeah, it's it it, uh, it it explains many things in life that I had never really considered before. Interesting. Yeah. What about you? What do you think about that? So I think uh, you know your best particular objections against some of Jane's ideas would be, well, if we go, um, and, and there's some things we haven't quite covered yet, which which will help, I think, with this. So. Uh, a lot of Jane's ideas are this idea that there was this break where we realized that, um, you know, the voices were actually inside of us. They're actually, you know, it, this is us. This is I, you know, I am the one who is the inner monologue, if that makes sense. Um, and that had to do with the Bronze Age collapse. So, you know, the archaeological record humming along, humming along, humming along. But suddenly there was this complete break, you know. What caused it? Not quite sure, but you know, mass migrations, famine, a lot of bad things going on, people moving around, and the question is: Well, if you come into contact with other people that are not in your, you know, local tribe, your local kind of village, and they have their own gods that are talking to them, and you look and you're like, wow, and and, and suddenly you start thinking, well, maybe it's all just internal. It's not quite that there's someone else talking to me in my head if you know if they have their own person so maybe it's exposure to other people that suddenly um makes you realize wow this is um 
it's a bit self-referential, if that makes sense. Yeah, James is, has really developed this. It obvious. It was obvious that he spent probably a lifetime thinking about this, and um, he's got all kinds of historical references um, and ideas why this might be true. And it seemed to center around about 3,000 years ago at the end of the Bronze Age. And to put that in perspective a little bit, there was the Stone Age, and then there was the Bronze Age, and that's when people started using metal for uh, weapons, probably primarily tools. So that's how, that's how we demarcate these different areas is in the archaeological record, what do we see that still remains? So right. stone tools to metalworking, bronze, and then to the Iron Age. Iron is, yeah. takes another leap. And, and, and the Bronze Age, of course, when we started using a lot of tools and weapons like that, uh, did cause a big upheaval in the world. Things change rapidly for a lot of reasons. They think there's some environmental influence that could be true, too. But if, it, if the big influence was the Bronze Age and using um, tools and using weapons as they had never been used before, then that would have caused a great upheaval in society. And you could see why those stresses uh, would favor some evolution in humans. So that makes sense to me. So that's a, that would be a real advantage. So I, I think the, the biggest kind of counters we could look for to Jane's work that might make us question some of the ideas would be you know, what, what if we went and we talked to some fairly uncontacted people? So, or, or people that don't interact very much with the modern world. So maybe San Bushman or, you know, someone in the deep in the Amazon, uncontacted people. Um, what's the island off Indonesia, North Sentinel Islanders, you know, people that just do not, you know, you can't go talk to them. It's not allowed, but if we could, you know, and we could ask them what their lived experience is like, and if it doesn't line up with this, that would be that would that would lead us to have questions about the idea that this this is the way things actually happened. It would, and it also raises the question: um, over a long enough period of time, would we have developed consciousness in any event? Was there is there just such an evolutionary advantage that that would have occurred? I think so. I think so. Well, and one thing, you know, this does tie into, um, I was recently reading a book by Garrett Jones called Hive Mind. It's the idea how, you know, if you look at, you know, average IQ scores across different countries, um, the average IQ score is much more predictive of total um, GDP per capita standard of living than um, just an individual score is, um, because it, it just, it factors up so much more. So the, the output of the United States is so much bigger than the output of, um, you know, what's a, what's a good country example that we can mention then several, you know, quite a few countries in the third world and it's, it's factored a lot more. Maybe there's something to do with having, um, smarter people around you at all times they you know they just it's just the average civil service is so much better if you know bureaucrats tend to 
you know, not accept bribes. They engage in more repeated games. They behave better, better in prisoners' dilemmas. They're less likely to defect. It's better for all of society. So it much more matters more that, on average, our people, the people you interact with on a daily basis, um, smarter than versus just like an individual's intelligence, mental horsepower, shall we say? So, so. What this leads me, so I was reading the book about um, Hive Mind, quite good. And he, he goes into a kind of a deep dive of um, the Flynn effect, actually. Do you know what the Flynn effect is? I do not. So Jim Flynn was a philosopher, is a philosopher, I think he's still alive, from New Zealand. He had this idea that, um, you know, he looked at, you know, this hereditarian idea around intelligence that it's all your genetics, that's all that matters. And he said, and, and he looked at it and he said, you know, I just don't, th- I do not believe that. And you know what? I'm going to look at the data and actually try and, pr- and prove that this is not really the case. And so he looked at all the data and he noticed if you look over time, um, IQ scores uh, keep increasing. They keep increasing. It's called the Flynn effect. And this is, um, been, it's a fairly robust effect over time. And they just keep getting higher and higher and higher. And And he's looking at this and he's wondering why does this happening? Is this happening? You know, it could be better nutrition, iodine, less lead exposure, you know, quite a few things we can think about there. Um, but it could also be, and his idea is, is that we're getting better at abstraction. So, you know, if you dropped you and I, his example is you, if you dropped you and I off in New Guinea and he said, go and figure out how to live, we would probably have quite a hard time figuring out how to cultivate, you know, local foods, how to hunt, et cetera. It would not be a very easy thing, but those people are very good at it. Um, although we may be currently better than at abstraction. Um, so maybe exposure to the modern world makes you better at abstraction. And I feel like Jane's work is kind of closely related to that. It's uh, the more abstract things we work on over time, the better you get at it. Cause it's a very similar thing, right? So, just being exposed, like creating this podcast, we have to think through, okay, what are we going to talk about? Uh, you know, what's interesting? You know, it's a very abstract activity. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. That makes sense. I'm sure our listeners will recognize that the podcast seems to get better. You know, kind of, it's probably asymptotic, right? We have some kind of ceiling of, of maybe it's like we're not quite Joe Rogan, right? But, you know, we'll get better over time. And um, I think that his work is it's similar to that and that, you know, encountering more complex problems, civilization, ideas like that, um, and more complex interactions with other people and strangers um, lends itself to requiring more um, abstract thinking and more um, the kind of kind of thinking of oneself as an individual more to be successful. That seems to make sense. Very cool. So I think that's um, kind of what we got for today. Okay. That, that was interesting, and uh, so I'll introduce you as Will Jarvis, and I'm Will's dad, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks. All right, here we are with part two of Julian James in the Bicameral Mind, which we discussed at some length in the previous episode, and now we're going to concentrate on the second part of that concept, consciousness. That's right. So I, I guess we could get started by defining consciousness. You know, people have spent a lot of time 
thinking about that and what it means. But to me, it, it's sort of easy to boil down to sort of self-awareness. That's what consciousness is. What do you think? So consciousness, ooh, yeah. So good Lord, where to begin? There's a lot. There's a lot. I, I think in this context, what we're talking about is is recognizing one's thoughts as one's own. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, if the bicameral mind was a sort of a, a mechanism of one side of your brain giving commands to the other side of your brain, consciousness is just in self-awareness is you just realizing you're there, right? That's right. Uh, like Jane says, you know, the difference between what others see of us and our sense of our inner selves and the deep feelings that sustain it. Yeah. Now, why would that be an advantage if we were going to form more closely knit societies, if we were going to be involved with a more global world? with a world outside of our own sort of imagination or self? I think one of the biggest things, there, there's, well, there's two trains I think are very important. I think abstraction is very important, understanding abstraction. And the second point is um, self-efficacy, understanding that you have the ability to make change in the world. You know, you've got to understand that you are an independent entity first to be able to act in the world. I think that's very important. I think it's very difficult to affect the world if you do not understand who you are. That's interesting. At any level. What role does um, an increased ability to communicate have to do with those things? Well, I think to be able to effectively, well, I think to be able to more effectively communicate and perform complex tasks, you have to have a theory of mind of other people. So, understanding so first you have to understand that you have you yourself are a discrete entity that's very important the second thing that is very important in any kind of repeated games and games here i mean any kind of human interactions kind of in the game theory sense you need to be able to imagine yourself as another person so let's say it, it's like if we're playing chess the best chess players, what do they do? They look at the board. They look at where they are, their current positions. Then they look at their opponent, and they imagine themselves. They have to be able to visualize themselves as their opponent and what they would do. So, very, so it's very it's multi-level. But it's very, in any repeated interaction, you need to understand yourself and you need to understand the other person. That's, I think, probably exactly right. And I hadn't really considered about the role of communication and self-awareness in that regard. But if we're going to form a society, a greater society, if we're going to be able to interact with other kinds of people, you've got to be able to appreciate their perspective. That's right. You need to very deeply understand their perspective to be successful. It's, it's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure I'll have to have a child psychologist on sometime and we can talk about at what point theory of mind switches on because it's it's not inbuilt it doesn't happen automatically there's there's some point where kids switch over from you know kind of the whole world is everything in your mind to 
oh wow, there's other people with discrete experiences in the world as well. Like this person has experiences just like I do. That's a really big jump. And you know, there's probably some people who still adults who have not even made that jump. I think there are adults that don't make that <laughs> Quite jump. Quite a few. <laughs> probably. And it sort of makes sense. Like we in the in the last episode we talked about schizophrenics and how right. bicameralism would explain their experience. And um so this sort of explains why it would be such an evolutionary advantage to be self-aware because it would lead you to appreciate others. That's right. Which And that, that would be just fundamentally important for large groups. That's right. And, and even more important, well, in playing political games and also in conflict. Yeah. Or especially probably avoiding conflict. Or an avoiding conflict. And avoiding conflict would be another evolutionary advantage. That's correct. That's correct. So the further we go down that road, the more important communication and self-awareness and appreciation of other people become. That's right. That's very interesting. It is. It's also interesting to me on another level, like I was mentioning, there's kind of two main I mean, things I pull out of this. Uh, abstraction is the second one. So the ability to abstract in your mind different problems and take it from not just, okay, what's right here in front of me, but actually manipulate things, change things, use your imagination, build different models of the world. You know, that practice is very important to creating, building, all kinds of different technology, not just you know, social technology as well as actual um, physical technology. Uh, is consciousness the key to being able to utilize abstract thought or to, for abstraction? I, I think it's very important. I, I would, I, hes, I hesitate to say it's it's everything because you know I'm sure there's edge cases I haven't thought about, but. It is very, it is clearly foundational in that you need to understand yourself, how you how you work before you, and have a theory of that before you can actually act upon anything successfully. I mean, just, just for, you know, this is almost a banal example, but I understand my basketball skill. If I didn't understand my basketball skill, and I understand there are hard limits on my basketball skill. If I'm going to successfully affect the world by becoming an NBA player, that would be a complete waste of time because that would be a complete misunderstanding of my current abilities, even my ability ceilings. I mean, we've got this modern, you know, idea that you can do anything you want, but like, of course, clearly there are hard limits. You know, I've not, I don't have this crazy vertical. I don't, you know, you're not seven feet tall, which is seven feet tall, you know, exactly. Exactly. Funny enough, I've read an interesting fact that about 20% of all men in the United States over seven feet tall play in the NBA. I've read that before, too. So, so essentially, if you're tall enough, you can play in the NBA. So I, think that's so I guess what that means is your chances of being worth many millions of dollars rise dramatically if you're a seven feet tall. Yes. That one, that no, one almost physical characteristic height. Right. Yes. 
Although there's lots of trade-offs, right? There's lots of trade-offs. That, there's lots of trade-offs. You know, there's health problems that come along with it and all kinds yeah. of things. But that, that, that's, that's interesting how many different, how much the world opens when we become conscious, self-aware. Not, it, it doesn't have to do with just us so much. It does have to do a lot with our success, our ability to manipulate the world. Um, but how it affects other people as well. That's right. Yes, I think it's 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 very important on, well, obviously on many different levels. I, I think on on the level of actually enacting change or progress or doing anything productive, it's very important to understand exactly where you are, and also try and understand where the world is. And that's a very abstract thing. What are the, what's the what's the meme? Four D chess. It's like four D chess. I'm trying to figure that out. So consciousness doesn't deal with us just knowing things about us. It's about knowing where we are in the world, how we fit into the world. Right. I think it's a second order effect of consciousness. Okay. Very important effect. That's interesting. And getting back to the anatomy side a little bit of what consciousness is, um, there are gamma bands or gamma waves in your brain, the neural oscillations. And where those occur during consciousness um, essentially engages most of the brain. It lights up most of the brain when that happens. So being self-aware just leads to unbelievable brain activity. And one of the things that I read about that was that schizophrenics will have impairment of that particular band of neural oscillation which sort of goes back to their, they may be much more bicameral than others. It's very interesting. Uh, it, it's, um, so, so I guess looping us back into Jane's work, one of the big takeaways that I find from the work is that there's this clear break, this clear break between bicameralism and understanding you know, yourself as a, this discrete entity that, you know, is introspection. So, you know, he, he tries to um, provide examples of this in the literature. You know, he talks about the Old Testament. And, you know, there's there's actually, um, you know, a lot of scholars say, well, if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, there's clearly elements of introspection in that. And, you know, I don't know. I haven't read the Epic of Gilgamesh since high school, so I couldn't quite tell you. But um, it, it is interesting. I, you know, I'm always skeptical of big theories like this that, you know, um, but but there is some kind of um, credence that that you can give to you, whenever there's a cult following. Like I love movies with a cult following, and I love you know this like secret, this group that has this small secret. And the, the Jane's acolytes, I feel like, are much like this, where you know you know they found something that they really believe is fundamental. There may be holes in it, um, but it's a very complex topic, and it's very. <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's a lot of different angles. And there could be things that are correct about it in some instances that are not correct in others. Um, and, and context matters a lot here. I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the things I got out of reading some about Jane's is um, it's not, you can't say precisely, I don't think. And there seems to be a lot of controversy about like suddenly we went from bicameralism to consciousness. Right. And it still seems to be, even even if there was a shift 
3,000 years ago at the end of the Bronze Age that really favored consciousness over bicameralism, there seems to be a lot of bicameralism in the world today. So it's right. not like we all are the same. We're all similar. And right. our minds may work very... You know, I've always been aware that our minds work very differently, but there could be just fundamental differences in our, our, our minds. In some ways, we'll, we think people's minds might be pathologic and they might actually be fairly normal if we jump back under the circumstances. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good point is that Another way you could frame it is that people that could abstract like this and introspect like this suddenly got rewarded a lot more. So instead of, you know, there's this whole, um, instead of a real break with everybody, it's that in general, on average, people became, the, the median person was much more likely to be able to introspect like this because it was much more advantageous to do so. Yeah, there would be huge advantages in life to be able to do that. And one of the physical manifestations of some of this is they realize this is true, the corpus callosum, which holds the two hemispheres together. If it's thinner, then you're able to uh, imagine your creativity is greater, your artistic ability is greater. Um, apparently, there's more facile crosstalk between the left and right hemispheres. So, and that, that sort of, again, it seems to be some evidence that all of those things are an advantage and you know, probably may well have led to the rise of consciousness. And, and I agree, if the, the, being able to do those things is just an enormous advantage in life. Especially, yeah, especially in a modern world, I think it's, it becomes even more true as um, kind of society progresses and things become more virtual and less physical um you know there's it's interesting you know i was listening to a podcast um by the hoover institution and it was with um ronald reagan's speech writer whose name peter robinson i believe and peter thiel and he talks about you know there's this been this big shift to interior interiority you know it's like a therapy culture video games um, you know, our world does not look very different than it did in the sixties, um, just physically. So physically went to a neighborhood in the sixties and seventies. Um, you know, there might be a flat screen TV, but it's still a TV. The living room would look very similar to even this room we're sitting in. I'm trying to pick out items that would be different. The computer, the computers, um, that's pretty much it. I think that's the only thing that would be different. So almost all innovation has shifted to these um, items that are kind of interior to our minds, introspective, and um, people almost avoid um, kind of making change in the world almost. There's much less of that. But, uh, that makes me wonder if there being advantage to being introspective, if that will select out even more and more in the future first of all, which you would sort of guess that's probably the truth. That's what that would be. Especially with COVID. Yeah. You know, it's just. Yeah. That kind of advantage. And then the second thing is, where do we go from here? Like there may have been a big leap going from being bicameral to conscious. What's the next big leap? Like, um, there probably is one. There'll probably be some advantage to the way we think. 
that will uh, make us change again. Definitely possible. You know, it, it, it's interesting. It, it makes me want to explore this topic further and really see what other big shifts are possible. Are there other shifts that have happened? Yes or no, yes or no. They, these are all kind of testable things, right? That, uh, you know, and we talked about this in the last episode. I, I think this does kind of bring to mind how disparate individuals' experiences can be in just ways we don't realize. You know, I have a friend, he's colorblind, and even that is, that's an odd, odd thing to imagine, right? And that's a very minor change is being colorblind. That's a very minor, minor change. But there's all these, this huge range of experiences in ways that are very difficult to kind of fathom for someone that does not um, experience the world in that way. In fact, it, it's probably impossible to even really understand. You know, you can conceptually kind of understand that it's happening, but it's very difficult to to um, to really imagine it. You know, Dan Brown, it may have been his last book, the guy that did the Da Vinci Code and those things. I think his most recent book was about um, how man would merge with artificial intelligence. And, you know, the artificial intelligence in itself is just, you know, we could do episodes and episodes about that one subject. But um, there's just so many ways in which we could we could change in the future over the next several thousand years it's true and one of the big shifts i see i'll call this out now there, there's a great book called age of m by robin hansen you know i got that i got to have lunch with him at a conference about a year ago pre-covid and it was fascinating to talk to him about some of these these issues but he um he his model is the most discreet kind of real model i've seen of artificial intelligence so the idea is like, well, what's the most straightforward path to AI? And now we've got GPT-3 that just came out and this. So maybe we're completely off base of this, but I, I do find this to be the most compelling. It's like, well, the, the most straightforward path would be we get really good imaging technology. We can completely image your brain. And then we just create a virtual simulation of it. It's very straightforward, you know. Now, versus all the other AI paths, I see this is the most, uh, th this I can grok the best, is the easiest for me to understand, and I think it makes the most sense, because there's a, kind of a straightforward path. It's just, well, better imaging technology, you know, we can already kind of do this with worms a little bit. There's actually a whole project about this, it's like modeling a worm's brain, um, and if you get it at a low enough level, maybe the quantum level, we don't know, you're able to... Um, model the brain completely. So the idea is you create these emulations, these brain emulations, and then you put them on computers and you can run them faster. So we could, you know, train up a, you know, the best nuclear engineer in the world in like five minutes, you know, hit go, he's trained, work on this problem. So suddenly, so this is the idea, this is the next big leap. Uh, and the, then the next question is, is do humans become obsolete? Well, it's like, yes, at some point, because, you know, human society shifted these just emulations of humans, not real physical humans, because, you know, it's costly to have a body. It's fragile. You know, you can back up an emulation at any time. Um, and there, there still may be a place for humans as weird kind of, um, you know, like a museum kind of relic, right? Like physical humans. But emulations will 
for the most part, the, the one encouraging thing about this is they they would behave like humans. So you know, a lot of people worry about you know paperclip problems. You know, what if the if we create this AI and it's all powerful and it decides we're going to turn everything in the universe into paperclips and it goes crazy? You know, I'm fairly skeptical of things like that because I don't know how we would design. I don't see a good pathway for designing um, an intelligence that doesn't operate like we do because it's the only intelligence we bear, you know, we, we remotely understand as our own. So uh, a, a related subject, what do you see is the difference between consciousness and sentience? You brought up earthworms. You brought up AI. I, I think consciousness is, so yeah, that's, that's difficult. I think consciousness is just the ability to recognize that you're sentient. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that's right. And uh, so it's it's really interesting to, you know, there's a lot of people think there's many different ways this could happen. Some people think it's just a raw horsepower number. So if you just have enough neurons and it's complex enough, this is like a complexity argument, then you're conscious. It seems odd to me. I don't know. Um, there's There's other thoughts too. You know, you could be kind of, well, there's this idea of panpsychism where our brains are kind of just like receivers for consciousness. And if you have a good receiver that's built the right way, you can kind of, you know, recognize this. But, you know, and then Jane's has kind of like a physical explanation, kind of more of a, um, which is interesting. I don't know. It's it's a very difficult topic. I'll, and I oftentimes often wonder how valuable the topic really is to cover. I mean, it's very interesting, right? It's like super interesting, but uh, in on, on the ground prop practicality terms for making the world better for people, I don't know how effective or how useful it is. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But we, we that is, you know, uh, popular culture. When does, when does AI become sentient? Well, probably when it becomes conscious. It's probably about right. it's probably about that point. So, what does that require? Well, we don't know exactly, but we have an idea that maybe we were not conscious in the past that we were bicameral and just um, environmental pressures gave us a, a you know Darwin. There was just an evolutionary advantage to being conscious, um, and so if it's that simple, then. Uh, with time, you would think that AI would it would probably just occur, whether through chance or circumstance, or maybe AI is subject to you know those evolutionary pressures as well. Right. Yes, and well, it is it is definitely is subject to evolutionary pressure. Right. Any AI we create is subject to our own evolutionary pressure right. now. Right. Um, yeah. But then again, I don't know. At the end of the day, does it really matter that the AI is sentient versus I think it's, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it does. I yeah. think it's just one of the states. I think in humans, does it really matter? I mean, if, if a schizophrenic is more an expression of a bicameral mind, does that really matter? Well, we think it does now because we think there's something wrong. Right. And there might be something I mean, we, we would like them to um, be less troubled by their position. 
Exactly. That's what we would really like. That's but right. if their minds weren't like that and they weren't troubled by it, and you've mentioned that there's many ways for minds to work, you don't, don't have to have this monologue going on in your head. That's right. You know, Much so, wider, wider range than people realize. Yeah, and that and it works. It works a lot That's of right. different ways. This, this reminds me of uh, a talk I had with a very well-known um, child psychologist. So I had this, this line of questioning I love to ask all academics and it's what what kind of piece of knowledge do you understand from studying your field that most people like the average person would would not really realize or would not you know think of on a regular basis and he said the most interesting thing to him was that you know you really don't understand how much children understand understand essentially everything you know everyone talks to kids and this is actually a huge pet peeve of mine is when people talk to children like they're not adults you know i I think it's important to frame children as small adults not um and you know they that have not been exposed to very much versus like a completely separate class of people because just you know they're still developing like theory of mind things of that matter nature but essentially and they may have less horsepower than most adults have mental horsepower, but that's coming online as well. Just a very interesting fact. And I wonder if AIs are similar in that, that respect. That's an interesting thought. And if children don't have the, the horsepower that we do, their minds seem to be much more plastic and flexible. Definitely much ours. more plastic. Yes. So there's a less huge Less crystallized, more fluid. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah. That's true. Very cool. Okay. Well, have we wrapped Julian Jane's? I think we have wrapped Julian Jane's. I'll, I'll include um, some some readings that we found useful kind of in, in going through this and kind of some information about the Bronze Age collapse as well from the last episode in the show notes. So you can um, purvey them at Good. your liking. Okay. Good. Well, another episode of Narratives. Thanks. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.